All right, we are into Daniel chapter 7 this week, and it is a little bit of a, of a transition, a little bit of a change, more than a little bit, it's actually a major transition is what we're going to find. You'll see there's a, a, a water bowl there with six goldfish, and I thought that's perfect because we're on chapter 7, and the seventh fish is jumping in to this other bowl here. We have gone from more of a historical account <coughs> and, and trying to understand maybe what the culture was like back in Babylon, how Daniel uh, worked through the tensions of being a foreigner in Babylon and how that looked for, for following after God, how that looked for worshiping God. And there's been some ups and downs in those six weeks. And through it all, we get, we get a sense of who Daniel is and where his priorities stood. And now, this fish that's jumping into this major transition is because for the first half of this book, we were telling the stories of Daniel and his friends. We heard and we learned about their faith and the courage that they had in a pagan culture with a pagan king and in a pagan land. And we learned about their courage in front of the kings from Nebuchadnezzar to Cyrus. And now in the second half of this book, uh, beginning in chapter 7, let me just address this here. There. It always kind of flops on my ear. My ears are too big. I think I found this spot. In the second half of the book, beginning with chapter 7, it reports Daniel's visions of the future. And so the whole style of this book changes. And so we move from those relatively straightforward narrative accounts into images of Daniel's prophetic visions. And so if you've been here for the last six weeks, you've known that as, as Colin and I have taken you through this, we've told the story, we've retold that, we've looked at, at the impact on the lives of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Mendigo and the life of Daniel and how they lived in this culture and in a countercultural way where they could still rejoice and worship God. Now this apocalyptic literature, rather, it's a term that comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Sounds really similar. And it just simply means revelation. Now I want to point out that every book in the Bible is actually a revelation of who God is. This is, is a different style of writing, yes. And yet we are able to see how God is at work. We're able to see what God is doing in this. But I want to remind you that that even in the narrative of the first six chapters, even in the, in the Gospels, even in the writings of Paul, even in the writings of the minor and the major prophets, every single part of our word, the word of God, is a revelation of who he is. And God, in this chapter and in, in the preceding chapters here, is uncovering some aspect of truth to his people. And he chooses to use Daniel and Daniel's dreams to get this point across. Now, they're different but the same. In the first six chapters, we find out God is in control. In these next six chapters, we're going to find out that, yes, God is still in control. We're going to see it in a different, more tangible way even. In the first six chapters, we find that, and we read about human evil, human sin. In these last six chapters, there's a bit of a transition into the spiritual realm and spiritual evil and spiritual sin. We see that there is literally 
forces at work trying to take away what God has created. And we're going to hear that story unwrap in a way that we recognize and we realize that God is in complete control. The first six chapters, there's deliverance out of a burning furnace, a lion's den, deliverance out of, out of living in a cultural way that they didn't want to live in. And in these last six chapters, we're going to hear about a salvation or a deliverance from the power of death. And so while the writing styles are different, they are somewhat the same. And I wanted to lay that framework, that groundwork, as we get into these, this last half of the book of Daniel. Now, chapter 7 specifically is kind of divvied up into three parts. First of all, the first eight verses describe horror, and, and Daniel gets these visions, and this, 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 this visual of water churning, and, and, and it's kind of the horror by the sea. And then in the second uh, set of verses, 9 to 14, we see God start to enter the picture of this dream. And then in the third, we see in 15 to 28, a divine victory. That whole idea, and you're going to hear it over and over and over again in the coming weeks, that God is in control. And so this is how these are going to play out in chapter 7 today. So let's start with the first eight verses and then talk about those a little bit. Now, something to note here before I, I start reading that is we're going back in time. You'll see this name, Belshazzar, king of, of Babylon, who we talked about two weeks ago, who is is already dead. And so this, this part of the book has been separated from that, the narrative of the historical. And so we're kind of going back in time. So don't let that confuse you. Uh, to back to the reign of Belshazzar, who we heard about briefly in chapter 5. And it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked up, and there, were, there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So, as we jump in to this beginning eight verses of, of chapter seven, we're seeing this shift already. Daniel has gone from interpreting dreams to now having dreams that are, are, are forecasting what is to come. Now, there's a difference in literature between prophecy and apocalyptic. Pro prophetic uh, writing in the, in the Bible, it was usually direct from God. 
God spoke directly to somebody, and then that prophet would go and speak to the people that God had called them to. Jonah is the perfect example. God says, you must go to Nineveh and, and give them this message, and he runs away, and ultimately, he goes to Nineveh, and he gives the message of the Lord. That's prophetic. Apocalyptic is, it, it, oftentimes, is God is speaking through a dream or a mediator. Now, often, God used, in, in this instance, God used uh, a dream for Daniel. And usually if there was a mediator, it would, came in the form of an angelic being or an angel. Now, what we find interesting here is that Daniel is not commissioned to speak to the people, but rather to write it down. And so keep that in mind as we go through this dream. This wasn't something that he was to go to the king or go to his people and, and shout and proclaim that God had said this to them. It was something that he was to write down. And right at the end of this chapter, we see something, uh, in essence, it's saying that Daniel kept these thoughts to himself. He, he, he kind of internalized after he had written them down. He didn't go out and proclaim what was going on. So let's go to the setting here first. Now, the beasts are symbols of forces aligning against God. Let's keep that in mind as we go through these next few weeks because what we're finding is, is either there are people that are aligning with God, that want God to be the center of their lives, or there's portions of this world, forces in this world that are saying, we are trying to push God out. We're aligning against him. Now, we're going to get into these beasts, and, and they generally symbolize different, uh, different eras, different uh, mighty kingdoms in the time of Daniel all the way up to, to, to Jesus. The beasts, though, are perversions of what God intended in creation. They're perversions of what God intended in creation. The imagery of these beasts, we see that they're like a leopard. They're like, fill in the blank, the only one that doesn't seem to have any modifications to it is the bear. And yet he's standing and he's got the ribs and he's eating off of the ribs, the three ribs in his mouth. And we're going to talk about them individually a little bit here too. And essentially, if we want the, the, the Coles Notes version, these are evil kingdoms that will come one after the other until the end of time. And so what we want to pick out as God's people this morning and, what, and, and in the weeks to come, and what I want you to be aware of is that when we look at apocalyptic literature, there is often many different views. There's often many different thoughts behind what they might mean, what they might entail. But what I want us to understand is that God's people must be prepared for persecution. God's people must be prepared to continue to follow after God even in the midst of the darkness that is to come. And Daniel sets this table here and he uses this terminology of this turbulent, this chaotic water. And it's moving in all directions. It says that the, the winds were coming from all directions. Not just a southerly wind, not just a, a northerly wind, but these winds were coming down from everywhere and churning up the sea and making it so it was just so scary and frightening. Making it much more than we could even kind of imagine because we're just kind of used to the winds coming one direction and battling that. 
But Daniel sees the world's kingdoms in their inner essence. And this is from the commentary critical and explanatory of the whole Bible. It says, Daniel sees the whole kingdoms in their inner essence as of an animal nature lower than human, being estranged from God and that only in the kingdom of God, the Son of Man, is true dignity of man realized. So let's go back there. The, the beasts of perversions of what are, are perversions of what God intended in creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, Scripture says that it was good. It was a perfect creation until sin entered into the world. God's design, God's plans for his creation are the opposite of what we're seeing with these beasts. Now, I briefly want to just, just touch on each of these beasts. And the first beast, it, Scripture says, is like a lion with wings of an eagle. So we can kind of visualize that. And, and I didn't go to my way to find pictures of what they all might look like because there's so many different kinds. But you can picture a, a, a mighty, majestic lion. And not only that, it has the, the wings of an eagle. Now, I've seen some bald eagles before and... And the bigger ones, I tell you, their, their wings are majestic and mighty and beautiful. And we can kind of visualize what this beast might look like. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, it's symbolizing Babylonia. And it's imagery that we've seen in the last six chapters already. We've seen it at work in, in some of the imagery of King Nebuchadnezzar when he was trying to have uh, monuments built. We see it in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so... This beast that is mighty and powerful in stature and in, in being able to look upon it, it's representing Babylon. It's representing the power that they had. Now, that one is fairly clear. Beast number two, Scripture says, was like a bear. Now, this is the one beast that isn't a hybrid, like I said. It doesn't have extra heads. It doesn't have wings to fly. Uh, but it says it's gnawing on three ribs while it raised up, while raised up on one of its sides. And voices crying out, get out, get up rather, and eat your fill of flesh. Now John Oswald says, it is with this second beast that the classic debate begins. Is the bear Medo-Persia or is it Media? Historically, we know Persia became a great empire by first acquiring the formerly dominant Medes into its empire. True, it was Cyrus the Persian whose forces defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC, but it was through the agency of Darius the Mede. So you can see that there's great theological discussion and great theological debate about some of these things. And we are not going to figure that out this morning. We can all give our opinions, we can all share our opinions on that, but what we do know is that it's this other great and mighty empire, and it's e either the, the, the Medo-Persia or the me media. Uh, and, and the imagery, John Oswald goes on to say, can be pressed to argue either position. And the, the, the Medo-Persian identification argues that, that media never existed as, as, as an independent world empire, and that the three ribs can be identified with the three great, great, great victories of the Medo-Persian alliance, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. So now that you're all confused, like me, it's one of those two things. We know it was one of those powers that were symbolized in that. That much we do know. So Babylon and one of the great powers that came after is beast number two. 
Beast number three, as we keep going, was like a leopard with four wings and four heads. Now that one's harder to visualize, isn't it? And what we see in here, though, is the symbolism of speed. That really struck me because leopards are one of the fastest land animals in the world. I think cheetahs are probably a little bit faster, but they're one of the fastest. And then you get the idea of the four wings which propel them through the air. And you get this symbolism of speed and of might and of power and of cunning and the ability to just go and be wherever they need to be. And so you're, you're getting this visual of an empire that potentially has great, uh, a great and quick spread. Most scholars believe that it's symbolic of the four kings of Persia and the speed with which they overcame the powers of the world. It's hard for us to fathom the greatness of some of these empires back in the time of Daniel. These were mighty empires. These were mighty forces. These were, were, were places that they would come through and they would just annihilate or encompass whole countries, whole districts, whole regions. We talked a little bit about it with, with Daniel uh, going to Babylon and how they were taught all the ways of Babylonia. And they were taught how to live and, and be part of that country. And in doing so, how it would often keep countries that had been taken over from wanting to overthrow because they'd kind of assimilated into everything that was around them. Well, beast number three, he could move so quick, he could encompass so quickly that countries and empires are falling before they even knew what was happening. And finally, we get to beast number four. Now, it's different from all the other beasts. The imagery that, that Daniel uses and the words he uses, terrifying, frightening, and very powerful. This is a beast that, that seems to be a step above the first three. Scripture says that it had large iron teeth and it crushed and devoured its victims. And it trampled underfoot what was left. John Oswald, uh, in his commentary, says, If one had already identified the first three as Babylon, Media, and Persia, then the fourth must be Greek. If, on the other hand, one has combined Media and Persia and identified the third as Greece, then the fourth kingdom must be Roman. So you see, we're still in that tension, and we're not going to figure it out. But you need to be aware that there are things in Scripture that are tough and difficult to understand. We wrestle with them. We have great debate. And, and even if you're talking with somebody who thinks differently on which empire this might be, you can have a respectful discussion and point out different things that you pick up and try to figure this out together. We're not going to do that today, like I said. But we need to set the table that there were dark and evil forces at play in the world at all times. Let's go to chapter, or verse 9 to 14. Because we see a shift. Like I said, that first set of verses, verses 1 to 8, we get that vision of this, the sea that is churning and dangerous and angry and violent. And now we get this different vision of a heavenly power. Verses 9 to 14 says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like wool, 
His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the cloud of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's powerful. If you didn't pick up on some of the imagery, open your Bibles and have them open. Just look at some of the things that are represented in there. Worldly powers, those those four beasts we just talked about, are represented as dark and angry and violent. These heavenly powers are represented as, as, as almost human in nature. And we remember in Genesis 1.27 that we were reminded that, that we are created in his own image. You see, the world and those evil empires, and it even happens today, the world takes what they think is powerful. The world takes what they think represents God, and they take it and they, and they switch it all around. And they, they, they wreck what God intended. And we get these beasts, these, these hybrid animals that don't even make sense. And isn't it amazing that in his word, that as we're talking about the power of heaven, the heavenly realm, that we see what God created. God is seen in this passage of scripture as being righteous, as being perfect, as being someone who knew and was above all the garbage in this first half. God is seen as being wise, all-knowing. All knowing. His, his, his wisdom encompassed every bit of what is going on in this world. And he also has power and judgment. It's interesting that we all like to be judges. We all like to do and say things and give our opinions But it's only God who is the ultimate judge. And we see in these verses, the the image of the sea has now gave way to the image of of a, a, a being, a figure riding on a cloud. And it's the ancient one, his coming to us in verse 13. Now, the cloud imagery is associated with the Lord's appearance in in. The whole of the Bible, we, we get this. In Exodus, it was a, he, his appearance was in, hidden by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. During the climactic um, ending in Sinai, the mountain was covered by a cloud as Moses received 
the tablets. In the tabernacle, as the Israelites wandered through the desert, God appeared in a cloud, and that was present in the most holy place. And here, in Daniel chapter 7, we get this vision, and they actually use the word wheels. Or, or, and, and so you get this vision of a cloud with wheels on it, and, and it's probably not how we would first envision it. It probably looked totally different than that. But we do see this imagery throughout Scripture as well. In Psalm 68, verse 4, it says, Sing to God, sing, sing praise to his name. Extol, extol him who rides in the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. Psalm 104, verses 3 and 4, uh, we read, He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. The Old Testament prophets also used a cloud-riding image in clear judgment war context. In Isaiah 19.1 and Nahum 1.3, it says, See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. I tell you, I love that we can open God's word and we can see things happening from one end of the Bible to the next, to to the very end of it. We can see this order. We can see this consistency where all these different prophets, all these different people were given the word of the Lord and yet the imagery, the thought process behind them are still so very similar. And we are left with two images here. On one hand, we have the image of the four beasts and the horns representing the fallen human kingdoms that are at work in our world. And on the other hand, we have these two human figures representing the divine realm. The the vision, John Oswald says, is more than a descriptive of these two realms. It is a narrative of the conflict of the two with a clear realization that God is indeed still in control. The beast, like the boastful horn, is destroyed. And so we are reminded that God is in control, and we are reminded that ultimately the victory will be God's. The victory over the evil forces, over the evil kingdoms, over the evil beasts, God will be over all of that sin in the world. And we look at these apocalyptic passages and we think well what are we supposed to take out of them well i think the implicit message that we're hearing today is remain faithful in spite of appearances remain faithful in spite of appearances does our world look like it's crumbling does our world look like it's being led by people that are are kind of descriptors of these beasts it sure does There's no denying it. But how do we as believers of God, how do we who know the end result, how do we who read our Bible live in that fallen world? We remain faithful in spite of what appears to be going on around us. I want to challenge us in that today. We need to remain faithful 
Because God is in control. There's no government in control. There's no person in control. It's God who is in control. And when he decides that these beasts fall, we see in in this verse, it happens. He is in control. He is more mighty, more powerful than any sin, any empire that could be in this world. Let's finish off uh, verses 15 to 28. (coughs) It says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit. And his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. I just got done encouraging you that we know the ultimate end. I just got done telling you that God is in control and God is greater than any of these beasts, any of these things that can come our way. But I also want you to be aware and and look at the effect that this vision had on Daniel. Listen to some of those words. He was troubled in spirit. It had him not just troubled from, a, from a, uh, a mental spot, but in his inner being, he was troubled. What he saw was horrifying. What he saw was not what he wanted to see. It disturbed him. It deeply troubled him so much. And I, I mentioned before that scripture says that he kept the matter 
to himself. And Daniel reacts to this vision with two things, fear and confusion. His fear signals to us later that to, 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 to us as, as the readers, the overwhelming force of this re- revelation. It wasn't just a bad dream. As he saw into the future, as he saw what worldly kingdoms would be doing and, and up to, it scared him, it frightened him. And we see Daniel, who, this is the same Daniel that would go before kings who could take his life in an instant and interpret the the king's dreams, interpret writing on the wall that we see in the first six chapters. we, We remember the confidence he had with that. And this revelation literally makes him turn pale. It silences him. He doesn't know what to make of it, but he does know that what he sees is horrible. So let's go to the interpretation. He says, what is this fourth beast? Well, here we, we, we get the angel, uh, angel's short answer in verses 17 and 18. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So we get the idea, first off, that this fourth beast is mighty and powerful and, and evil, but it's not going to be allowed to be at work forever. The NIV application commentary says that there's an ambiguity that remains, that is not directly addressed. Namely, and, and even not even the beast, but who are these saints that are on high? And oftentimes we hear the word saints and we think, well, those that have are believers, those that, that follow after God. But in the Aramaic language of the book of Daniel and in the context that we see in Dead Sea Scrolls and other writings of that time and in that language, the phrase often refers to angel, angelic beings. And so the NIV uh, application commentary says, the debate on this issue has raged, but the angelic interpretation is by far the most dominant today. Behind the earthly struggle stands a cosmic battle. The exiled Israelites are not just engaged in an earthly battle, but one with heavenly significance, that God and his angels will receive the kingdom as good news to those who are on God's side on earth. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual war. It's it's a war between good and evil. It's a war between God and Satan. But, nevertheless, we are reminded of who the victor will be. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, if that passage is talking about angelic beings in that war, we can't forget that we are still going, we're we're still a part of this, that, that, that humankind still were in the midst of this tension. 
And whether this passage refers to God's people or indirectly to them through their spiritual uh, representatives, the message is the same. God will win. God will win, and we're reminded of that. Maybe you're sitting here today. I really hope not. <laughs> but maybe you're thinking, but I want to know more. <laughs> You've almost got the, the amount of knowledge I have on this. But this fourth beast, beast John Oswald says, intensifies the evil of its predecessors and produces pernicious offspring in the form of 11 horns. The 11th horn is the most rebellious. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. Now Daniel is curious about this beast. It's the only one he specifically asks for follow-up on. And it's likely because this beast frightened him the most. Now, we've talked briefly about what this fourth kingdom represented. Some say it was the Greek Empire. Some say it was the Roman Empire. And cases are made that it could be for either or. But it's a very uncertain among scholars. And one of the things about apocalyptic literature is there is an uncertainty. There is an unknown. And there's an element of faith that we need to put into this. But I don't want to leave you in that tension. I want to leave you with what is certain. And so as we finish our time here, I want to remind you of where we've come in these, these last six chapters. What is certain is God is in control. He was in control in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to bow down, and those three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to, and God was in control. God was in control last week as Colin took us through Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. God shut the mouth, the mouths of those lions, those beasts, those earthly beasts. God had control over them. God was in control in the dreams that the kings had. In the writing on the wall that they could not interpret, that he had Daniel come and interpret. He was in control in, in chapter 1 in the everyday things of their lives, even down to their diet, proving that God was powerful. And he has power over all powers, over any beast, over all principalities. Ephesians 1.21 reminds us, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You know what Satan thinks? Satan thinks he has the upper hand. And Satan thinks that, that all will turn towards him. That he can deceive and he can bring things into this world. And that everybody's going to turn their, their back on God and turn towards him. Satan thinks that ultimately he will have victory. He knows the story. We know the story. And yet his goal is to deceive. His goal is to bring discredit among the believers, the followers of God. And there are promises that even as we go through trials of our own, that the word of God reminds us of and tells us over and over that 
that what Satan is trying to do isn't going to win. What he is up to, he has no control. It's God who is bigger than anything that you may be facing. Any trial that you're going through right now, God is bigger than that. God is bigger than any of the uncertainties of life, those unknowns, those things that we just wish. Could you just show me what are my ways, which steps I'm to take, Lord? God is bigger than those doubts. God is bigger than any family drama you might be going through. Anything that's going on, and sometimes they're literal dramas, sometimes they're health problems. God is above and beyond and and bigger than any of those, than any illness, and bigger than any unknown. We're reminded in verses 27 and 28 of Daniel 7, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. And my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. As we leave this place, we leave into a fallen world. We leave into a world that is trying to discount God. We leave into a world where Satan is roaming to and fro, Scripture says, seeking whom he may devour. But if God can be in control in the furnace, if God can be in control in a lion's den, if God can be in control in in our family drama, in our dreams, if God can be in control of everything around us. Let's leave this place knowing that God is even control in each and every one of your lives. And whether anything good or bad befalls us, that doesn't change that fact. God loves you. He's in control of the forces of this world. And one day... He will return, and he will call his people to him. And we will be rejoicing with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Father, there are things in the scriptures that are hard to interpret, hard to understand, hard to even fathom. Father, we watched as Daniel in the first six chapters showed tremendous poise and bravery over what he was seeing and was being put in front of him. Then we watched as Daniel here is frightened about what he seen was to come. And yet, Father, we're reminded today that we're prepared for no matter what is to come. We know that this world has an expiry date. We know that this world will come to pass. But we also know that it won't be until... You say so. So all the powers of this world, all of the satanic things that he, that Satan is trying to do in, 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 in from one corner of this earth to the next, doesn't even come close to what you're doing on this, on this planet. So Father, may we go in confidence. May we go remembering your word. May we go knowing that even if 
the trials result in us losing our life, that you are still in control. Father, we leave with that knowledge in your heavenly name. Amen.